0: Picture this. You finished your first book and nailed it. The plot, the characters, all the twists and turns. This one's a winner, and all you need is the right cover. If you've got my art skills, this is the part where panic usually sets in. Enter the Cover Villain, hero to writers everywhere. Founded by noted author Remy Flagg, Cover Villain focuses on composite image covers for science fiction and fantasy writers. Give them the details and they'll craft a cover using popular trends that everyone will want to see. But wait, you say, I've got ideas of my own. No problem, as Cover Villain loves a good collaboration. As they say, our goal is to put a little villain in every cover we make. Want to know more? Then head to CoverVillain.com and follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Hey everyone, how's it going? You're back with Citywide Blackout, your home for music. Movies and more, I'm your host, Max Bowen. Author Evelyn Latore shares a story behind her marriage to Antonio, a man she met while serving in Peru as part of the Peace Corps in her new book Love in Any Language. And in this episode, we dive deep into her meeting Antonio and their early years together. Evelyn also shares what led her to write the book in the first place and how she decided what to include. We talk about what makes a cross-cultural relationship work and the things learned during her time with Antonio. And for this episode, I am sitting down with author Evelyn Latore for her for her brand new book, "Love in Any Language," available through She Writes Press. Evelyn, welcome to the show. It is great to have you here. I am thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying the book.
1: Thank you. I'm really impressed that you have it and that and I'm and I'm not surprised you're enjoying it because it was number it was number one on Amazon for quite a while under Peru travel, which surprised me because it's a memoir. But it, but it's so vivid to me, reliving that that I can see where other people might think they're in Peru when they read it.
0: <laughs> exactly. No, I I love a book that gives me the chance to like see a new place, even if it's just through like words, because I feel like if it is if it is well written, it can take you there. It can like help you to travel and see the culture and see and and you know see the life over there. Uh, that that actually leads to a question. Like when you were writing this, did you have to? go back and forth a lot to make sure that you were properly conveying the experience?
1: I had journals that I had kept when I was in the Peace Corps in Peru. And not only journals, but for whatever reason, I keep receipts, I keep airplane tickets, uh, and almost anything that I was writing about, I could find an actual reference to it. Uh, And what I couldn't find, I could look up on the internet, like the population of places and things like that. Um, so I, I, that was very helpful. What I didn't have that you really need in a memoir is feelings. And that might surprise you because the book, a large part of it is about falling in love. And, uh, I would write down what Antonio said and what he did, but I didn't always write down my my feelings but i could tell in rereading it and i had not gone back to my journals until oh after i retired i retired from 32 years in education in nine in 2002 and that's when i started writing and i dug out the journals and i was just pleasantly surprised with all the detail that was there hmm
0: when you were like writing the book was this like taking you back through uh, through the experience again where you're thinking, "Oh yes, I kind of forgot about this, I forgot about that. That was really amazing."
1: Absolutely. And and I've finished a second memoir and the same thing happens and I really encourage people to to write down the memories, really get into it. I could write for 8 hours straight because I was living in this time of falling in love, which if you've fallen in love, it's just a glorious time to be and my husband's is a very private person and he did not want he, he kept telling me don't write about me you know him write about yourself well I was writing about myself but there was no book without him and so we compromised he said no pictures of himself which I'm sure people are disappointed I put a number of photographs in the book that my older son helped you know make bright and things like that um so we compromised and I changed his name. So his his real name is not Antonio, but Antonio fits even better than his real name. So what, I would, what would happen is I would be writing and writing and I would come downstairs. I write, do all my writing in bed. And I would come downstairs from my bedroom. And I say, I just love this Antonio guy. Cause it did, it, it, it brought up the feelings of falling in love for the first time. Now I still love him, but that was super exciting remembering that time. The only time I hesitated was, you'll see towards the end of the book, there is an incident, a situation, well, it says right on the back cover, I got pregnant <laughs> and I was on my way out. I was um, flying out. I, I The Peace Corps had uh, done, they have a, like a debriefing. And I was on my way out of the country back to California and he calls me and so you'll have to read the book to find out what happens then, but um, but that was traumatic, and I did not realize for many years how traumatic that had been, and um, I and it gives you compassion for yourself when you when you write about yourself, especially your younger self, you can see how naive and vulnerable and uh, so many things you were, and uh, it just I think it can give you an appreciation. Let me just add one other thing people, many memoirs are written about much more traumatic situations than mine, you know, illnesses and divorces and things like that. And I often wonder how can they go through that? Because when you write, if you're going to write a good book, you have to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite so that it hangs together. Right. And it, and so that brings people in and, and to do that, if I had had a very traumatic existence, that would have been much harder.
0: Okay. Wow. When you were uh, running uh, this book, as well as your um, uh, first book, Between, um, Between Inca Walls, what happened when you hit a part that you said, I don't know if I should share this with everyone else? How did you kind of process that?
1: I left out some things that I didn't think were anybody's business. Um, and uh, but, but you have to be honest. And, and I wanted to be honest. And so I did take people along with me as to as I was going through whatever I was going through. Uh, Now, you've switched to the second book. I kind of was talking about the first book. There's a traumatic incident in the end of the first book. In the second book, um, although it starts off in Peru, there's a tiny bit of overlap. But when you write books, they really need to stand alone. But I do suggest that people read the first book and then uh, Love in Any Language, because the second one is about how it was for someone like my husband, my new husband, to come up to the United States. He didn't know the language. He had never been out of his country before. He didn't have a marketable skill and he hadn't finished college. And that's what I gained by writing the second book, so much appreciation which I didn't have at the time. I had a lot of impatience and a certain resentment at the time when we first came up and I was expecting a baby and he could not support us. So so that, I guess you could say was traumatic, but when you're young like that, you just, or at least me, I had a job within two weeks of getting back to the United States and was working and earning an income and we've done fine. We've done really well, but um, so, you don't know when you're writing it, what's going to come up. And in the second book, I don't know if you'd call it trauma. It's just life. You know, you have to get through it. And what's so great about writing about it all is you see how things fit together, how, and in my case, how lucky I was, how fortunate I was with so many things that happened just right. And you'll have to find that out. But um, I, I, uh, besides winning all kinds of contests that I used to enter, um, I, I I don't know that my life could be replicated in this day and age with the situation the way it is. I had scholarships to go to college. We had we lived in student housing. We had food stamps. We we were qualified for food stamps. I went from being a social worker to having. To go to a social worker to renew my food stamps every few months. And um, and childcare. Uh, childcare was m- much more reasonable. It was done on a sliding scale in the beginning, and then later, friends of my mother took care of my children and pay, and I-, I paid them 50 cents an hour. Now, this was back in the 60s and 70s. There were many other things that I realized that were not so easy, especially for women, and that comes out in the book too. Okay.
0: All right. Let us then uh, go back a bit to the story in the new book, Love in Any Language. Uh, this is the uh, the part two of you meeting yeah. Antonio while you were serving in Peru with Peace Corps. Now, I have actually never met someone who actually was in the Peace Corps. So I kind of like to start with that. How did you come to be in the in the Peace Corps and what did you do?
1: Well, again, you find all these coincidences that I kind of have to smile at. Um, that's in book one, Between Anka Walls. I had been, uh, first of all, I was raised in a corner of southeastern Montana. And when I was 16, my parents moved their f- five kids to California. Before we visited California, we, b- the year before we moved there, we we visited. I had never seen the ocean. I had never seen the mountains, except in books. And I was just enthralled that there was another world out there out of my little corner. Because in my corner, uh, girls my age were expected to have a, get a horse and a husband in that order. And my father, for some reason, he had four daughters. And he wanted us to get a college education. And it was difficult on his salary. He was a signal maintainer for the Milwaukee Railroad. And uh, they were phasing out his job. I think it's now all automated. The people that maintain the signals, he used to have to go out and check them. Well, so he applied for jobs and got one in uh, Fremont, California. So then we were all moved out here. So as opposed to being traumatic for me, my parents worried how it would be on me. I was the eldest and how I would adjust. I adjusted much better than my younger brother, which in book two, you will see. That uh, I don't know if that's what affected him or not. So, uh, so how did I end in, in the peace Corps? When I was in California, there of course were various nationalities, ethnicities, and I had never been exposed to that in my corner of Montana. And I, uh, when I went to college, I got a scholarship to go to Holy Names College, a Catholic college. Um, Cesar Chavez was working in the Central Valley, and at the time I was down there. Um, taking a census among the migrant workers. And so I would go down on weekends and with other college students and go door to door. I remember distinctly walking door to door with Cesar and, and, you know, filling out forms to see who was a migrant and who wasn't. So there was another guy from St. Mary's college that would go down there. His name was Tom. And uh, I kind of got a crush on him. He'd play the guitar. And I mean, just being in the Latin culture with the food and the music and the colors and all of that. I mean, that was romantic enough. And then, you know, I kind of had a crush on him. So uh, I went down one weekend uh, after I'd been going down for many months and uh, Tom wasn't there. And I said to the priest in charge, I said to, Father Cowan, where's Tom? And he said, Oh, Tom went into the Peace Corps and went to Peru. So <laughs> I had, in the interim, the summer before, I had gone to a convention in um, Minnesota, in Minneapolis, where says um, where Sergeant Shriver spoke. And I knew about the Peace Corps, and I really, I had spent a summer in Mexico, and uh, that was just the next step. After spending a summer in Mexico, the Peace Corps was the next step. But I didn't know Latin American countries, and because Tom had... Gone to Peru. I thought, well, I'll put down Peru, so I did. And would you believe, after 60 years, uh, last Saturday I was at a a barbecue with the group called Amigos Anonymous that I had gone to Mexico with, and one of them said, "Well, now, would you happen to know this Tom guy? I won't say his last name." They know him. I mean, what a small world! I, I have found him on LinkedIn and know that he lives in Northern California and all that, but. I don't know if he realizes that he was the reason that I ended up going to Peru. And I don't think he knows that I ended up marrying a Peruvian. So it's all, all because of Tom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom. I mean, that's
1: you are. At 19 to 21. I mean, you know, what else do you have to occupy your mind?
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the guy you like goes to the Peru off you go. Um, yep. What was it like for you though, when you first got there, was there a lot of like uh, a culture shock?
1: You know. I, I have more of a culture shock coming back to the United States after being in Latin America. Uh, and I can talk about that later if you want me to. So I don't remember having much culture shock in the beginning. I did the first uh, or the second day I was in Lima. You stop in Lima and you get oriented. And uh, Tom was scheduled, he, he he had been placed somewhere around Lima and we arranged to get together for lunch. And there's a rule in the Peace Corps that you go Dutch. You 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 each pay for your own lunch. Well, I hadn't exchanged any Peruvian soles at that time, and I, I didn't have the right money. And I think he was a little upset that he had to pay for my lunch. I did pay him back. I did pay him back. Uh, and the other thing is. Uh, by that time, I, I, I wasn't that enamored <laughs> with him. And he was a little jealous because he was stationed on the coast and I got sent to the Sierra and to Cusco area. And that was a prime area to go. There weren't too many of us that got sent there. Uh, so I, to me, it was all just an adventure and exciting. Now, the excitement kind of waned a little bit because when we got there, Peru at that time was accepting more Peace Corps volunteers than any other country, if I remember right. And the regional director in Cusco didn't even know our group was coming. So there were no placements for us. And my girlfriend and I were the last to be placed. They did find places for a lot of the other people. And then they wanted to send us up to these high mountains, which are beautiful in the Andes, but we had to take horses to get up to this little town that they wanted to put us in they said we could the regional director said we could go there and as we're going up through the horses we said well how do we get our bed springs through these narrow uh entry points there were cliffs on either side and the bed spring wouldn't fit there and then we got up there and we liked the people but we said well what if we had got an appendix attack how would we get to medical help, and there was a rule we knew about that you're not supposed to be more than eight hours away from medical help. So, um, so, and, and then the natives there said, "Well, in the winter when it rains, the path, the dirt path, becomes like a river, and you can't get down anyway at all." So that kind of settled it. When we went back to Cusco, uh, we didn't, we really didn't want to be stationed there. But we went ahead planning for it. We, we found we when we were in that place, we found a place that we would rent. And we figured we'd raise chickens on the bottom floor and we'd live on the top floor. And we had it kind of planned out. We started buying stuff that we we're going to take. And then my future father-in-law happened to be in town. And one of the volunteers who had already been in Peru for a couple of years said, well, you know, the Senor Eguilus has been asking for volunteers for Avancay for two years. And he's in town. So we said, well, if you see him, introduce him to us. And he did. And Senor Egilus was about to leave town, but he stayed long enough to convince the regional director that Marie and I should go there. So, no, we didn't really have a lot of culture shock. We had some premonitions, some, you know, and, and the way Avankai was described turned out to be correct. They, it was Senor Eguilus explained that it was a like a shangri-la with flowers and the altitude was lower There's a beautiful pristine lake above and the regional director said well you can go look at it and see if you want to go there we said we don't have to look at it we just knew it was going to be better for us than this isolated other beautiful place up in the high andes so so no no culture shock long way to answer it
0: yeah <laughs> That's good though. That's good. Uh, Meeting Antonio, what was your first impression of him? What was it like?
1: Well, I don't believe in love at first sight, but maybe like at first sight or attraction at first sight. He's very handsome, you know, dark, shock of dark hair. And he still has it at, he's like 70, going to be 78 and he still has a full head of dark hair. Um, and, uh, And, and it was more, more his character that I fell in love with but, but the handsomeness didn't hurt um, for the first attraction. And I was, he says that I was just ripe for the picking. So I, you know, I was 21 and I guess I was ready. I had gone with quite a few guys in the States, but um, never really was that attracted as you've, if you've read the first part of the book, you know, that as soon as I hit Mexico, I Latin guys, just uh, a lot of them. I liked, I just, I, I just liked their liveliness and, so there's something about him that I, and I still do, I still do in the second book, you'll you'll see a picture of someone who's even more handsome than my husband. Now, um, you, have, you have to get the second book and read that. Um, but anyway, I mentioned in the long explanation about uh, culture shock, uh, Senor Egilus, because uh, people wanna know, well, how did I end up meeting my husband to be? Uh, and it was because Senor Egilus had a stepson And a few months after Marie and I were put into Avancay, we had to be back in Cusco. The the Peace Corps was giving us shots all the time, Uh, you know, injections of one thing, you know, gamma goblin, anti-rabies, whatever. I I don't know, just all kinds of injections to keep us healthy, I guess. Um, So uh, we were in there for some reason. And we ran across Senor Eggilus, who was in Cusco also. And we said, What are you here for? And he said, Well, I'm here to pick up my stepson from college. And we said, Oh, how old is he? We they'd never mentioned him. We got to know his family really well. They invited us for lunch all the time. And he'd never mentioned that he had an older son. All, all his kids were young. And when he said 19, I thought, that's a little young. I'm 21. That's that's you know, too young. Well, it turned out that he was the same age I was. That the stepfather really didn't know how, what age Antonio was, <laughs> and and so like they always did, they invited us to lunch, and um, so we 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 were there quite a bit, and I we were both attracted to one another, hmm. but we we dated for a year and a half. We would see each other when his university went on strike, and he came home or. Uh during vacations when he was back there, or when I went to Cusco sometimes. Uh, we saw quite a bit of each other, and uh there was just no way we we could marry. I mean, I did not want to stay in Peru, and he didn't have any plan for you know, if we married, where were we gonna live? I mean, he he was a university student, he had no money, so uh, so it was impossible. So that's what a good part of the book is about: is just the back and forth and you know, until the, and, until he caught me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Any particular memories of those early years that stand out in your mind?
1: Oh, just how exciting it was. I'm still in touch with the Peace Corps people who were there with me. Just yesterday, I had a long conversation with Ken, who figures in the book. And he was saying, like all Peace Corps people I've ever talked to, is what an impact the experience of living in another country had on us. And the fact that we were there for two years, uh, I learned the language. I I became pretty fluent. I think it helped that I was placed with Marie, who was already fluent in Spanish. Although uh, eventually I had to do my own talking for the first few weeks. She would do the talking because she understood and she, she didn't make as many mistakes as I did until one day I heard someone say, uh, well, why doesn't Evelyn talk? Is she not as intelligent as you are, or something like that? Um, it was something that really got to me, and I, I started speaking right then, right away. I, I, I yeah, I, I wasn't hesitant. We went. We had training in Puerto Rico, and I was stationed there with like three other young women. At least two of the three had been Spanish majors, and they knew what a mistake was, so they were reluctant to speak. I didn't know I was making mistakes. So I, in Puerto Rico, I would speak to the kids. There was another guy in Puerto Rico uh, that uh, we would talk all the time. And then when I met Antonio, he corrected me a lot of the time. He corrected my Spanish and he, he takes the credit for my learning Spanish fluently. He does not give me credit for him learning English fluently. So uh, there you go.
0: (laughs) There you go. So When and how did you make the decision to go to the U.S. together?
1: As you are reading, I don't know what part you've gotten up to, but there's a lot of back and forth. Like, I just am not going to stay in Peru. So so we said goodbye. And his biological father lived in Ohio and had lived there for many years. And so he would write to his father, especially when he had fallen in love with me and he wanted to go to the States. He wrote to him and said, couldn't he sponsor him? Could he help him get up there? I wrote to him and said the same thing. And his father wrote back and said, I'll bring you up when you're fluent in English, when you have a job skill and I don't know, something else. And that was impossible living in Peru. So we we figured it was doomed. Um And I often think how I would have felt reading my journals if we had not married, because I would be reading about this great guy and wondering whatever happened to him, who he married, how many kids he had, all that kind of stuff. So um, what happened was I didn't know if I was pregnant or not. It was the very end of the Peace Corps. And like I said, I went, we all had to go to Lima and they have a, a where they debrief you. But the Peace Corps doctor in Cusco had said to me, uh, oh, I I thought I had worms. I mean, I had stomach discomfort and I had I would get sick in the morning. I had no idea what it was. Uh, both uh, Antonio and my girlfriend, Brie said, well, it's just that you don't want to leave Antonio And that there was something else. And the doctor, the Peace Corps doctor in Cusco said, well, it could be a case of worms. So they but they did arrange for a test with um, uh, obstetrician in Lima. And there's a very dramatic scene in the book where I'm in his office by myself and the nurse puts her hand on my shoulder and says, you are pregnant. And. Uh, communication back and forth in the country isn't very good. I don't know how it is today. Well, everybody has cell phones today, but we didn't have cell phones then. So I, did I get word back to, you have to read the book. I have to remember how I don't, I think I wrote him a letter, but I wasn't sure it would arrive in time. Oh no. In fact, there's a, I I wrote the letter in there and said, I didn't know what I was going to do, that I was pregnant with his baby but I didn't know what I was going to do. And I might take a tour around South America with the other volunteers. Now that's how (laughs) a 23 year old thinks. I think sometimes, you know, well, I'll just go on with my life anyway. Yeah,
0: exactly. I don't
1: know if he even got the letter because he, in the meantime, was was so distraught with my leaving him in Cusco that he sent a letter with another volunteer who was coming from Cusco to Lima And it got to me, oh, oh, got to me about the same time he did get a hold of me by phone. That's what it says in the book. And he says, I don't care whether you're pregnant or not. I want you to come back and marry me. Aw,
0: that's nice.
1: Yeah, no, he's a very sweet guy. I like that. Very sweet. I like that. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, I want to ask a bit about being in a bicultural relationship because that's... it it has its challenges um and also has it's like wonderful moments too because it's it's a chance to really learn about an entirely new world but what was it like for the uh the two of you how did you kind of make it work with the difference
1: well in the second book love in any language a memoir of a cult- cross cultural marriage uh you'll see that it didn't really work that well in the beginning uh we started off uh, like I said, I got a job right away in a hospital as a n- night clerk I, after the Peace Corps, the Freedom of the Peace Corps. I couldn't stand to, to go to an eight to five job. So I took a four to midnight job <laughs> and that made it seem OK. And uh, so I would transcribe the doctor's notes and I would uh, intervene in phone calls from uh, the relatives. It was I was in the women's women's burn unit. So I came up first because, for a lot of reasons, you have to read in the book, and he, the embassy kept making mistakes with his paperwork. He was stuck in Lima with, at his grandparents' house, so he didn't come up for a month later, but he he did write to me, and I would get the letters, or we would call once in a while, and, and the phone calls went through between Lima and, and California, and he said, well, now wait to buy a car until I come. And he wanted you, I could see he wanted to be involved in our decisions, uh, a whole lot of things, a, a place to live and all of that. Of course, I came up and I was with my parents. My parents are very religious, very Catholic, and I could not tell them you know, what condition I was in. Um, I started eating a lot and my stomach started protruding, and I think they just thought I was you know, gorging on food I'd missed for a while. Anyway, so uh, Antonio is about to come up. And he says, I'm going to uh, send a telegraph saying what time I'll arrive at San Francisco airport so I could pick him up. And he put down in the telegram, I wish I still had the telegram, uh, he put down 12 a.m. So I work four to midnight. So I plan to get off early to go pick him up at midnight at at San Francisco airport. About five o'clock, I get a phone call that says, from Redwood City, uh, across the bay from me, it says, we have your husband here. Do you want to come and get him? So we started off, I mean, that, that's one cultural difference because um, they they use what most of the world uses is, you know, 13, 14 for the hours. And that would have solved that. But we go 12 o'clock and he had put 12 o'clock. to you know. I picked him up in a Volkswagen I had purchased. And we went to an apartment that my mother and I had picked out that was an adults only apartment because I couldn't tell my mother that I was going to have to leave in six months to, because it wouldn't, we wouldn't be the only, you know, we would have a child. And so, so that didn't start off. We didn't start off really well that way. And I'd say that was a cultural difference in that. I was taking charge because I understood the culture. However, he's a very rational person. He considers himself a scientist. So I think he, he understood the other advantages that he was young and he wasn't that attached. He was attached to his family, but I think he he was very open to a new experience and he uh, fared well as far as I knew. When I ask him, he says, well, that's in the past. You got to think in the future. So there's no way he's going to write his side of the story. But from my point of view, I just did what I needed to do. And he went along with it. And there are several instances in the book, I don't know how much I should give away, where he, he grew up in the indigenous culture. And so when we had our first child, he dropped me off at the hospital and went home. And because later he explained that the indigenous women, and indigenous women in, where he grew up, just squat and have their babies in the field and go back to work the next day. Whether that's true or not, I, I think there is some truth to it. It's not a big deal. They don't, you know, put you in the hospital for weeks and all that kind of stuff. So, so that was a cultural dif- a big cultural difference. Uh, there are a lot of instances in there. I don't know if I chalked it up to his culture. I, I the, throughout the book, what I'm looking for is why did we stay together, and and. What difference did the cultures make? And was it because of our personality types? Was it uh, Did we have differences because of our personality types? Because he's a man and I'm a woman? Or, or is it because of his culture was different than mine? And there is a lot of culture. But there's a lot that I gain from being part of his culture. I see my own country and myself from through different eyes that have not been I don't want to use the word brainwash, but that have not been brought up to think a certain way, and he he he's been brought to think a cer- a different way. If you don't mind, I I have a, a nice um, review on uh, Amazon, uh, and it's all of it's nice. But uh, I, I, if I just read the last two sentences, she says, "In our country today, cross-cultural misunderstanding is rampant." I would argue that we all have much to learn from those who successfully navigate a cross-cultural marriage. This book offers many insights for us all. And she, she says earlier that, you know, um, I say that our cultures balanced one another. I, I think that's what the, the uh, Latino culture did for me. It balanced me because my background, my parents' background, uh, my mother's family came from England and my father's ta- family came from Germany. And we didn't have much uh, physical affection, verbal affection in our family. Now I knew my parents loved me, but I just really loved, and still do, the Latin culture because they're so expressive.
0: Mm-hmm. Now I also know um, that you have a um, a doctorate in um, a doctorate in multicultural education from the University of San Francisco. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like your relationship with Antonio, your time in Peru, kind of? helped you along with that part of your education?
1: Oh, the career that I had and and that degree, I owe to wanting to know more about other cultures. Uh, I don't know if, if it, it, doesn't say there, but my husband and I now have traveled to over a hundred different countries and we're about to go off to Morocco in December. So, um, So we both love different cultures. He didn't in the beginning, in the beginning of my second book, you'll you'll see where I took my boys, they were 13 and 17. And for two months, we went around Europe. He did not want to go. But now uh, for the last many years, he has. But in terms of the influence, uh, I, my, my curiosity about other cultures just continues. And when I decided I was going to get a doctorate, because in education, it pays off to get as many degrees as you can, because you get paid more. And I love learning. I just love learning. And, and they had just put in uh, that major uh, multicultural education. And I was a minority in, in that uh, discipline, very much a minority, Uh, but I loved it because I had professors from all over the world, Israel and, you know, Puerto Rico and uh, Chile, you know, all over. And it gives you the gift of, of seeing yourself and your country through another culture's eyes by interacting that way. And I got a Fulbright scholarship. I wasn't able to take it, but I got a Fulbright scholarship because I planned to go back to Cusco and study their bilingual classes. Quechua is the indigenous language there, and more than half the population speaks Quechua. And my husband is speaks Quechua. So I was going to go back and study the, their bilingual program, Spanish Quechua, but um, there was a lot of... Um, Oh, what would you say The terrorism at the time? And my husband thought it would be too dangerous to go down there. So so I didn't take the full right. But no, I've I've kept interested. And now my husband's interested in other cultures. And he's a great companion to travel with because his education in history and geography is much more thorough than mine. I did not get a very good education in history and geography. I mean, most Americans, if you ask them where Peru is, they they can't locate it. Let me just tell you a little anecdote. My father-in-law came up to visit us once and I took him to some of the schools I was working in. My career was mostly as a bilingual psychologist. And uh, we go into a bilingual classroom that we had uh, in in the school district I worked in. And the teacher wants to show the class where Peru is. She pulls down the map. No, no Peru, any place, no map with any. Peru on it I think it went as her maps went as far as Central America and that was it so for a bilingual classroom, you really should have a map of where they speak Spanish but that kind of tells you Americans think we're it and everybody else is you know not worthy of being on a map
0: (laughs) do you feel like that attitude has changed in recent years oh yeah
1: well it has among the people I know I mean, I hang around mostly with ex-Peace Corps people and Amigos Anonymous people, people who've been to Mexico. Uh, and I, I love the change in the belief that other cultures exist and are valuable and we can learn something from them. Now, living in the San Francisco Bay Area, that's pretty much been the case for a long time. I lived, We lived in Berkeley for a long time. And I I, I love that liberal type of thinking. I don't know that all places value that, though. You you ask if I think it's changed. It's pretty much been here, and it's gotten better. Um, I live in a town that has the second largest Afghani population, and so we've been raising money for the refugees. And um, people are very generous and and very open to that, and very open. And we've got great restaurants. I mean, we have. I I think the Asian population. Well, I know. The Asian population between people from India, China, Japan, and then there's uh, a big Afghani population. Um, just uh, I'm in the minority here as, as an Anglo. so So yeah, it, where I live, there definitely is okay. uh, acceptance.
0: All right. We've talked a lot about the story that you cover in both books, but one thing that I was really curious about is What made you want to write this in the first place? Like, why did you want to share your story with Antonia, with the whole world?
1: You know, I feel very vulnerable having done that. And at first I was just writing it for myself because I wanted to know, because I love to write for one thing. I've got several articles out there. They can be found on my website about how I came to have a writing life. Like I was telling you earlier, I can just write for long periods of time and rewrite and just love, it's my favorite thing to do. Well, maybe other than travel, uh, they're a tie there. But, um, and then my next book will be about my travels. I've got to figure out what hook I'm, what structure I'm gonna use for that. Cause, Cause I've had some interesting um, situations traveling in a hundred different countries and they're all so different. But anyway, I had a question as I read my journals or maybe that's what threw me back to reading my journals. For the first book, the question I had was, how could a girl who thought she was going to be a nun, up until I graduated from college, I thought I had a vocation to be a a nun, how could she then get pregnant before marriage, which was verboten? And then the second question I had for the second book was, how could a marriage last for, well, we've known each other now for 56 years, we've been married for 55 years almost, how did it survive? all the things that i knew we went through and the pressures in the united states today and when i looked up the statistics the relationships between latinos and americans or well people from hispanic countries maybe um i think they last longer uh, at least the statistics that i could find they don't all last but the the um divorce rate among yeah, you know, in the United States period is 50%. It's, it's getting better. Uh, I had two sisters that went through very bad divorces, a lot of friends that went through divorces, including some, another Peace Corps a friend who married a, a native from a Latin American country. And they divorced within a few years. Well, they had three children and then they divorced. So I was looking at my own marriage and, and trying to figure out what had made it last. And you'll have to f- read the book to, to find out. Well, I really should tell people. <laughs> I mean, because I, mean, I think I discovered why. But I kind of want people to come up to their own conclusions as to why it would have lasted. First of all, when I met Antonio and, and fell in love, I didn't know that's what love was. I had never felt that before. And I, I didn't know what it was. I think he knew because he asked me to come back and marry him. Because I I could have gone I I would have left. So does that mean I didn't love him as much as I did? I think it just means that I didn't want to stay all my life there. I have known couples that have made. I have a brother, a younger brother who has a PhD in history and lives in Jalapa, Mexico. He's a professional musician, and he married a Mexican woman, and he's been married now twenty years, and he lives in Mexico, oh. and so um, and very happy. Uh, his family gets together a lot more than my family. And that's just the nature of that culture. And I do envy that part of it. And I miss that part of it. But I think you were asking about my husband's adjustment. My husband valued education as much as I did. And so coming to the United States, he got as much education almost as he wanted. Hmm. And, and I think that was a good motivation to stay.
0: Okay. Okay. Now I know that you've done a number of uh these interviews you've done um, a number of lectures as well what are people most curious about when it comes to asking about your story
1: Well I've I was doing a lot of speaking about my first book and the number one question was well, what happens after the wedding <laughs> And it took me I'd say 14 years off and on to write the first book because I was traveling in between and doing a lot of other things, but, and learning how to write narration because my writing since college had been proving a theory or very, you know, academic. And so I had to learn how, what makes a good book. And uh, I luckily I had some very good teachers and a great editor and um, I took a lot of classes. And then I helped start the Fremont area writers, which is a branch of the 2000 member California writers club. Yeah. Well, it, it was, they wanted to know why did I stop at the wedding? Well, I did that because I was at 86,000 words. And for our first book, you don't want to go over that. Uh, my editors suggested that I stop at the wedding and it was kind of a relief really, because we had worked and reworked most of the chapters up to that point. Uh, but I had written two chapters past the wedding and so I thought, well, what am I going to do with these two chapters? And what am I going to do with my time now? I, I really missed writing. So I took those two chapters. They're not the first two chapters of the second book, because things get rearranged all the time when you write. But I just kept writing. And I didn't have journals though to refer to. What I had were baby books, because I had didn't keep a journal when I was raising kids and working full time. Uh, but I had calendars, I had. Uh, but most of all, I had Christmas letters, a Christmas letter that I wrote every year and I kept copies and I could go back and see what were the high points of each year way back when, and then a funny thing happens when you start writing anyway, you, things bubble up from your unconscious and you start remembering things that you hadn't thought about for years, both good and bad things. So I just, I just kept, kept writing And, um, and people were waiting for it. So it took me a year to do the second book. I don't, I don't uh, recommend that people do that because I was trying to promote book one while I was finishing off book two. And um, it's really hard. It's really hard. Once you write a book and you get it out there and you want people to buy it because you think you have a message or because people will learn another culture through it or something but you have to promote it you have to promote it so it was hard promoting it at the same time I was trying to finish my second book
0: yeah and i i um i find that that is like the hardest part for writers is to be their own marketers you got to promote yourself you got to do the interviews you got to go to the conventions and the expos and just like stand there and say hey read this book
1: well, and during Covid, you couldn't do any of that. My first book came out when we we just had shut down. So I have not been to a bookstore. I did have a Zoom launch of my second book a couple nights ago through a bookstore. Uh, but as far as going to bookstores, uh, now in California, well, Boston, Massachusetts is almost fully vaccinated. So you guys are out probably we're, we're going to find out a week from tomorrow. If we can start going around without masks, I think people are still hesitant. At least people, my age are quite hesitant. I just got my booster shot on Monday. So I'm a little less hesitant. And like I said, we have a trip planned and Morocco is not vaccinated hardly at all. I just hope it's not, well, no, it, it, I don't know what it'll be by December. But anyway, um, yeah, it, it's been very difficult. The only way has been on on through social media. So I urge people to go to my website and they can see both books. They can buy both books either through their nearest bookseller. Uh, I have several uh, Barnes and Nobles on there. Amazon is on there. You just click on the buttons. And, um, you can, you can get my book very easily. Um, but it's www.evelynlatori.com. And, um, yeah, uh, I, and it's been, and, and there's a lot of competition. People are reading more during COVID, but there are more and more books being published because people are home and they're writing books.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the irony of it all, right?
1: I know. I know. And I myself have been reading a lot of the books that are published, a lot of memoirs. I love memoirs now. And, um, I, and I don't, you know, I, I get some on Kindle. My book is available on Kindle. Um, and I get paperbacks, but I like the old fashioned way of holding a book in your hand and being able to go back. And I mean, you could go back on Kindle, I guess too, but I just, yeah. So, um, it's a great thing to be put in another world, somebody else's world. I mean, it's just almost as good as writing, is is to if a book is well written, you just are part of their world and you learn so much and you identify with what they're going through or what they're having. I've been amazed at the people who say that they identify with my book in the strangest parts. I mean, somebody that that was grown up. Uh, that knows Montana, for example, or somebody that's been to Mexico. There, it, it varies what part they will identify with, but invariably there are universal truths that people can see that are just about human beings. So I I love that.
0: I like that. I really do. All right, Evelyn. Well, on that note, we are going to be bringing this interview to a close. I want to thank my guest, Evelyn Latorre, for joining me, and for the folks at home, if you haven't. Get your copy of Between Inca Walls and Love in in Any Language. Go to L A T O R R E L-A-T-O-R-R-E.com for more information and definitely get this book. It is an amazing adventure.
1: Can I mention one quote from Pablo Neruda? Because I noticed in your podcast, you have a lot of musicians. Pablo Neruda said, the person dies slowly who doesn't travel, read, listen to music, and isn't enchanted with oneself. And that's what it takes to write a memoir, is to be kind of enchanted with yourself. So thank you very much. This was very enjoyable. You're very welcome. This is Angelina
0: Singer, author of the Upper World Series, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout, the best podcast for independent artists. Okay, everyone, that brings this episode to a close. Big thanks to Evelyn for joining me. And definitely check out her book. I'm reading it right now, and I'm really, really digging it. In the meantime, you can follow this show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Check out the show wherever you find your podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. And if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com. As always, keep those ears open.